today, I uh, realized I need to fulfill two promises that I made you about a month and a half ago. One is, I told you that we'd talk a little bit about the Anabaptists, that I was saving the Anabaptists for uh, a time, and I want to do that now. The other is, is I told you that there were some messages coming up that you probably weren't going to like. I just know that today will be one of them. And uh, how many of you believe that uh, you're here for a reason? Um, you know that you know somewhere in the infinite space uh, space of time. You know God said before the foundation of the world that on that day, that Sabbath, we're all going to be together. So, so just try to keep that in mind and remember that. And probably one thing that you could give any preacher a break is that usually, usually, at least I know it's true with me. That if it's a message that you don't particularly like to hear or want to hear, we don't enjoy saying it either. We don't particularly revel or like it either. Especially when you're with family, when, you're, when we're all together. Um, because I like uh, being at ease and I like having comfort and peace. And hopefully this will lead to peace you know, for us. This whole series, hopefully, has led to a peace for us. Um, it's always peace leading when we figure out and know what we're taught the power of the cross really is and what the power is behind it and that love is the absolute fulfillment. That should lead to peace. May not lead to peace here. May not lead to peace uh, between us uh, immediately but uh, continuing to pursue that as believers in Christ that we are and should. Um, we're always headed for peace, are we not? The Anabaptists began to set themselves apart about 50 years in to what is known as the, probably the mainstream Reformation. And the thing that made them radical, the one thing that made them radical, set them apart and even got them this nickname of Anabaptist. By the way, Anabaptist is a simple way of saying uh, they want to be baptized again or rebaptized, or they are rebaptizers. It wasn't an endearing term, by the way. It was a derogatory term. And that is that they required baptismal candidates to be able to make a confession of faith that is freely chosen and in doing so, rejected the teaching of the baptism of infants. One founder, uh, uh, Balthazar Hubmeyer, put it this way. He said, I've never taught anabaptism, but the right baptism of Christ, which is preceded by teaching and oral confession of faith, I teach and say that infant baptism is a robbery of the right baptism of Christ. Amen, but you can also see why it got him in trouble, right? I think he needed a public relations director. You know, you, you, could, <laughs> you could ease up a little bit on that. Anabaptists were heavily persecuted by the state churches, both magisterial and Protestant and Roman Catholic. All, the Anabaptists were one of those unique groups that was persecuted not just by one particular branch, not just by Protestants, not just by Catholics, but by both. And they're some of the very first martyrs to be made in the time of the Reformation. It 
one thing that's unique about them, that's very interesting about them, is that Anabaptism was never established by any state. Do you remember what we pointed out, uh, the problem with the medieval churches, Roman Catholic and Protestant, is that they sought uh, power and sponsorship and everything else from the state. Now, it was necessary. It was necessary at the time. You know, it was absolutely necessary for them to be able to exist. They had to. But that's the other thing about the Anabaptists is that they never sought any of this. As a matter of fact, they uh, uh, fastidiously avoided it. They wanted no sponsor but the Holy Spirit. They adhered to a literal interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Teaches against hate, against killing, against violence, against taking oaths, participating in use of force, any military action against participation in civil government. Anabaptists viewed themselves as primarily citizens of the kingdom of God, not of any earthly government. As committed followers of Jesus, they seek to pattern their life after this. And in the 1500s, what started out as a one particular group began to branch off. And so today, you have so many uh, walks, if you will, that come from the original Anabaptist movement. Probably names you recognize. And you didn't even realize that this is where they came from. The Amish, the Hutterites, the Mennonites, all strictly come from Anabaptist roots and theology. By the way, the very first, I believe, Protestant building block of Adventist theology is Anabaptist. We probably, that probably is uh, our, how do you put it, our DNA of Protestantism. That's who we should go to. Not, not that we can't borrow from or take from uh, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, which we, we, we have, but probably Anabaptist theology is the one that kind of grabs us the most and that we have most in us when you look at Adventist theology and how it was formed. The thing about them is that I think that they begin to key this shift in the way that the beast operated. At the time, the beast operates by, by what? By force, right? We've learned that. They took the power of the cross and they made it into the weapon that it, that it became. They used the sword in order to begin to convert people. It says that the beast forced everybody to worship. If you didn't worship God, what happened to you from the beast? You died. You were killed. And that operates well. And it's supposed to operate for uh, 1,260 years. Well, there are almost 1,000 years into it, and there begins this shift because I, th I believe that this force and force alone uh, approach begins to backfire on the beast. And the Anabaptists may have been the, I guess, the catalyst of that. Because their persecution by all churches at the time begins to be the most powerful tool for witnessing that the church will ever know. And that is that as they were martyred, they would win converts. It must have woke the beast up because apparently force begins then to backfire. Martyrdom serves as a powerful witness. In one particular place uh, that, that, that um, you, you can read about the, the various forms in which they martyred the Anabaptists, one was in, in Zurich and in Geneva, both that have big lakes in order to be baptized in, 
Okay. One was that the, the, the way that they were persecuted, the way that they were martyred was, you want to be baptized again? They would, they, would put them, they would put them in a sack. They would wait down the sack. They would row them out to the middle of the lake and they would throw them in. The thing was, was that it would take a while. It would take a while for them to be all bound up and rowed out. And as they, that was happening, they would preach. They would preach to the people that were on the shore. And when one martyr went into the water and they came back, there were four or five in the water being baptized. So the beast must realize that. Force and force alone is now beginning to backfire. He's gonna have to come up with something else. The dragon has to have a, a, another wrinkle in the plan. The beast needs a new image. He needs to rebrand. He needs a new image. And we know what happened. We pointed that out. I'm still kind of reviewing uh, and, and, and hopefully folding this in. But Revelation 12, 16, it says, the earth came to the help of the woman, opened its mouth, swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. The earth begins to open up. The closed space, if you will, in Europe, in the old world, is about ready to swallow up the remnant. But the earth opens up about this time now. And just a quick review, looking at the churches and looking at the reign of the beast, it all comes together in this. Beginning in 538 uh, to 1563 CE, Thyatira begins to rule. They begin, the beast begins to, uh, to, to uh, get steam. He begins to roll, okay? All the way to Sardis, and it's gonna go all the way to the end of the end of the beast. The 42 months, the 1260 years, goes from 538 to 1798. And it takes up this huge chunk of these churches, the earth then, at, at, uh, somewhere around 1798, the earth opens up. It gives woman, the woman some space, endless space. The new world gives space now for, for religious experimentation, if you will. It makes denominations possible. All because it offers one thing to anybody who's looking to get out of the old world, worship according to their freedom, and that is the freedom to do so. Adventism had to have this space. It couldn't have occurred in the old world. We couldn't have occurred in the old world. We would have gone the way of the, of the Anabaptist martyrs. So the end of the beast's reign, if you will, is kind of signaled by this earth opening up. And it's also signaled by what's happening in a major shift in places, uh, in uh, groups like the Anabaptists. The force is still working and it's very effective, but it's beginning to crack. It's beginning to crack. People are beginning to see that the power of the cross is not the power of the sword. You don't make martyrs. Well, you do make martyrs by the sword, but you don't make the decision to be a martyr by the sword. Amen? It's the power of the cross that gets us to decide to be a martyr, to fall under the sword, if you will, for the cross itself and him. So the end of the beast's reign is this opening up. Now don't misunderstand. History has to have its word, okay? You didn't find religious freedom in most of the colonies, did you? 
Massachusetts Bay, on, uh, you know, just to use Massachusetts Bay because it becomes the most famous, it becomes the richest. You had to be Puritan to live there. It is in the charter itself. You had to be a Puritan or a Puritan follower in order to live in that colony. In the 1630s, there was this left-wing nutball of a Puritan looking for room for his own experiment in Massachusetts, and he didn't find any room for it in Massachusetts. He found that Massachusetts was just as brutal as the land they left behind, and he decided to say so. He wrote, he spoke. I got three problems with this colony, he says. I would like the right to separate rather than to conform or reform. I will not take a civil oath concerning my religion. And I don't appreciate the Puritan practice of appropriating land from the natives without paying for it. Anybody know what his name was? Roger Williams, that's right. And he was banished from the colony for feeling that way. So he started his own. On land that he buys from the natives, he establishes Rhode Island a colony where you could believe just about everything. There were very, very few restrictions. All walks were welcome there, even Quakers and Jews. Quakers and Jews being the most hated at the, at, at the time. I don't know why, especially the Quakers. The Quakers were mo- most peaceful. Quakers didn't even have formal clergy. They didn't have formal clergy. They didn't have formal worship. They sat around together and they waited for the Spirit to move them. They sat around until they had light to give to each other. In fact, William Penn is so inspired by this that he starts his own colony, the Quaker William Penn. He welcomes all walks also and offers refuge for all minorities. Even Anabaptists find refuge there. This is why there's no accident that most of the Amish and the Mennonites and the Hutterites still live in Pennsylvania. So think about this. In Penn and Williams' case, the earth did indeed help the woman, didn't it? It opened up. In 1644, Williams writes, the bloody tenet of persecution. In it, he calls for the complete separation of church and state. He negates the belief that ecclesiastical uniformity was essential to political health and political peace and church health and church peace. So when it came time to draft the Constitution, they had a choice. They could go by the way of the Massachusetts Bay Charter or they could go by the way of Roger Williams and the bloody tenet of persecution. And which one did the fathers choose? Ratified in 1788, it includes the First Amendment, which says what? Congress shall make how many laws respecting religion? None. No law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble to petition the government for a redress of grievances. First Amendment. United States Constitution, ratified 1788. I look at these dates. I look, I look at uh, what we're looking at. I look at these dates. Remember these dates, 1788, 1798, all of these. I hope that you see that the prophetic history seems to begin to fold in, doesn't it? 
See, in the founding of the new world, there were those that felt that religious freedom was not necessarily a good thing. Huge opposition, not just for Massachusetts Bay, but for many of the other colonies. Huge opposition to religious freedom. Huge opposition to a wall being erected between church and state. So we remember that the beast goes all the way to 1798. And when he does, it says here in, 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 chapter, in chapter 13, verse 11, it says, I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. Remember the first one rises out of the sea. It rises out of all the peoples of the old world. This one rises out of the earth, the land, the earth that opens up, according to Revelation 12 in the chapter before, to give the woman room. And it's, it has two horns like a lamb and it speaks like a what? It speaks like a dragon. You have to remember who's kind of in charge of this false trinity. It's not God, is it? It's the dragon. After he loses the war in heaven, he decides that he loses because he doesn't have a powerful enough army. So the first thing he does is goes to the beach and he raises up his army. A beast that rises out of the sea and a beast that rises out of the land. It exercises how much of the authority of the first beast? All, it has all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. Makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. See, now you look, you have a new timeline to look at. The beast from the land will now go from 1798 till when? We're not giving an end date. The first beast was given an end date, right? 1260 years. 538 to 1798. This second beast, no end date, which means how long is he gonna be with us? And notice, he doesn't clamor for exercising authority. He doesn't have to pronounce it. He doesn't have to say it. The first one, it had to, it had to be proclaimed and the whole world wonders after the beast. This one didn't even have to proclaim it. So just like we know that Philadelphia only goes for 50 years, 1798 to 1850, Laodicea goes from 1850 till when? Till the second coming. So the church and the beast, I told you before, the end, the final days, the, the, the final cataclysm, if you will, is not the world versus the church or the church versus the world. It's the two churches that continue to fight the true one and the false one, the church of the lamb that was slain and the church of the beast. Both being led, if you will, and lived in and given fuel by trinities. The dragon, the first beast, the second beast, the father, the son, the Holy Spirit. A complete false way of worshiping. And remember, the subtle difference between the two worships is how the two gods ask for your worship. With the beast, it doesn't ask, he takes. With the lamb, he asks, do you want to get well? Do you want to be saved? Would you like all your sin forgiven? Would you like my righteousness as a gift? So it's a new timeline Welcome to the beast's new strategy, if you will. Welcome to the new image. 
Just like a company rebranding, the beast rebrands. Force isn't quite working. As a matter of fact, it's beginning to backfire, so I'm gonna give them something else. They want freedom. They want freedom. I'm gonna give them what they think is freedom. It says it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of all. And by the signs, by those signs, the signs of what? Signs of power. What's the difference between the power of this and the power of the first beast is this power seems to come from where? Seems to come from heaven. Where the power of the first beast, it came from the sword of Rome and Constantine. You see the difference between the two? It's still power, isn't it? But this one seems to come from somewhere else. It seems to be a bit more divine. It seems to be a bit more like God. But by those signs, it says it's allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it what? It deceives the inhabitants of earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. Force isn't working. Or it still is working, but it's beginning to crack. What he needs to seal it now is to give the beast the power of what? The power of deception. Force and deception. He needs to begin to cover up that he's forcing everybody to worship. He needs to begin to cover up that there really is a true difference between the power of the sword and the power of the cross. And the way that he'll get us to do it, to deceive us into thinking that there isn't a difference. And this next beast, this next beast has the power to be able to do that. Trying to get these believers to think that maybe it's okay. Force isn't that bad. Force doesn't seem to be that bad, especially if it's coming from God. See, the first beast we have no trouble identifying. It looks just like the dragon. Seven heads, ten horns. Looks just like him. Satan thought he could force his way to God's throne in heaven. He thought he could fight him for it and take it. He gets an army together now to fight the church. He hijacks God's power on earth with the sword. He forces people to worship. He kills anybody who won't. The beast looks exactly like the dragon. This one? This one is tougher to identify, isn't it? Why? Because of the way that he looks. The new brand, the image, it works. He's lamb-like. If he's lamb-like, it means that he kind of looks like who? He kind of looks like Jesus. Remember I told you before that Protestant theology claimed to put Jesus back at the center Remember, they, 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 they go the way, they, they, they set aside everything that was beast-like about the first church. They set it aside and they seem to bring Jesus back to the center. Luther finds the gospel in the book of Romans and he says, wait a minute, I was never taught this. This is unreal, this is unbelievable. By Christ alone, by faith alone. Protestant theology uh, claims that it puts Jesus back at the center. But remember, what's the one thing that Protestant theology didn't get rid of? They didn't get rid of the sword, did they? They still mixed it. And remember, it didn't save the church, 
made it worse, nearly killed it. Sardis is a church that has a reputation of being alive. But Jesus says, you're not, you're what? You're dead. No matter how many times, it doesn't matter how many times you say it. We're alive, we're alive, we're alive. Protestant theology, faith alone, scripture alone. Da-da-da-da-da-da, Jesus says, keep, keep on talking, <laughs> but you're dead. This one, though, is lamb-like. This one begins to look like Jesus because it takes that Protestant theology and holds on to it. And I believe takes what's good in it. But still, still there's something about it that makes it a beast. There's something about it. It looks like the lamb. But when he opens his mouth, when he exhibits his power, what does he speak of? The, all the authority of who? Of God? All the authority of the dragon. Remember, that's where God's power is. Where is God's power to create and to recreate? It's in his what? It's in his word. The dragon has word too. The dragon has a message too. He gives breath the same way the father does. It looks just like him on the outside. But all the signs that impress people are from the beast. It says that that the signs all come from where? On behalf of the beast. It's the power that continues to impress people. But the one thing this beast has done is to convince people that the power is, although coming from the dragon, really looks like it's coming from Jesus. And it deceives the inhabitants of the earth. All the signs that impress the people, again, is, is, is the power, the overwhelming power Everything that impressed them about the first beast. Almost no one sees through it because it has Jesus' name on it. But I want you to note the results. The results are what? The results are the same. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be what? Has the exact same results. If I'm a worshiper of the beast, I may feel a little better worshiping the second one because he looks like Jesus. And I can claim to be a follower of Christ as long as I want. But this beast then allows me to do unchrist-like things, unlamb-like things when I want to also. Who wouldn't want to worship a God like that? One of the reasons he's so effective is that this is exactly the God we created in our image. I like to say the hardest thing about following Jesus is that, that pesky, pesky, second commandment as great as the first, love thy neighbor as thyself. Ugh. How many here would think their walk would be a whole lot easier if Jesus just left that out? That's why it's so easy to worship this beast because this beast does leave that out. Imagine being a follower of Christ, loving God with all my heart and my soul, but if I come up against a neighbor that I can't love, the beast gives me permission to do something else. Gives me permission 
to, to kind of turn the cross around and make it the sword that Constantine made it so many years ago. The results are exactly the same. Worship the beast or die. Worship the beast or die. So, can we get real too? What can we get real about about why this beast is so easy to worship, why this beast is so easily uh, deceiving uh, uh, so many people? Why? Because again, it's how he looks. He's lamb-like, so he looks a bit like Jesus, and he begins to put on an image, if you will, this new brand is that he's American. Remember the second great awakening, and I put it in quotes, made America a what? A Christian nation. It's the other reason why this beast is so clever at what he does, is that he's American. Religious freedom can and will erode here as it did in Europe in 538, but why will it be okay here? Why is it okay for it to happen here? Because again, it's American. This Christianity is Christianity co-opted by the same civil authority and power that, that happened in 538. It's just that this time it's not Rome. And Protestants always seem to think that if it isn't Rome, it's gotta be good. This is just another superpower, though, that does just what the first beast did. This one has a new coat of paint on it. It's lamb-like. It's red. It's white. It's blue. But it's the same. And it gives breath to the image. It gives breath to the image. And it causes all. How many? All. All both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Slave and free. Taking away a freedom. If you take away someone's freedom, what did you just make of them? You made them a slave. This beast enslaves, takes away liberty while claiming to be ordained and provided freedom by God Almighty. Do we recognize these words? We hold these truths to be what? Self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are our life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. 1776. Note the dates. Where are we at? Are we in Philadelphia yet? No, still got about 30 years before we get to Philadelphia, don't we? Almost 30. And again, I don't want to get too forensic about these dates but we sure are forensic about them when we want to be. I told you the first time that I went through the seven churches here, I, wanted, I didn't want to do the standard interpretation, and I was told that I should. 
<laughs> Bring the dates back. It wasn't just the second, you know, January 1st, midnight, 1798. This happens in eras, right? It happens over time. But the second beast isn't even taking control yet. It's the end of the first beast. Declaration of Independence. Pointed out that when the 56 delegates signed this document to go home and send it to King George, and they went home, when they got home, 41 out of the 56 who signed that document, claiming that all men were created equal, went to homes and farms that were staffed by slaves including the author who wrote those words. The ones who believe that all men were created equal with unalienable rights could gladly pursue their life, their liberty, and happiness, which included worshiping the lamb if they wanted, but also said they could deny it to others. This was the beginning of red, white, and blue Christianity. This is where it had its founding. In 1667, the Virginia legislature, 1667, the Virginia legislature made up of Anglican men and priests made it law, law, that baptism did not free a slave. Imagine that. They would, they would preach the gospel to slaves hoping to be able to baptize them but they wanted to make sure that they had to enforce it by law, that they had to enforce it by a sword, is that slaves were not freed by baptism. You imagine that, being freed into the eternal kingdom of God, but having to remain property to a Christian here on earth. By the time the Constitution is being debated to be ratified, There are 700,000 slaves in our beloved country, 18% of the population. And by the way, we talk about the mark of the beast being economic, you know, always being economic. 18% of the population, how much of our economy relied on that 18% of the population at any given time? Some of the numbers are up in the 60s and the 70%. No wonder this was written the way that it was written. See, in the Adventist church, I've been preaching and teaching for 35 years. And always, don't it it seem that we spend a ton of time, huge amounts of time in the book of Daniel and Revelation talking about that first beast because I can identify him, I can look at him, I've got an enemy to look at, I, I, can, I can see him, I, I, can, I can put on him all the evils of the world. And then we get to the second beast and we just kind of go, well, you know what, we don't too, know too much about it, all we know is that someday that beast is gonna institute a Sunday law and then we'll go to heaven. It's this right here, it's this why we like doing this, like why we like skipping past it. Because this isn't easy to hear, is it? Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, Hancock, Hopkins, names that inspired us to reverence from the day that I was in school and took my first American history class. 
fought, died, served for liberty that they believed only belonged to them because they were white and they were rich. Do we recognize these words? If is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or what? Give me death. Patrick Henry says that in 1775. But in the debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists over the Constitution, Henry is the leading Anti-Federalist. And in the debates, he finally stands up and tells everybody, if you support this Constitution, they will free your... That wasn't in my seventh grade history book. Give Me Liberty and Give Me Death was in print about that big. But just a few years later, he tells the supporters of the Constitution, this is what's going to happen. Pointing out to them that fear, he says, is the passion of the slave. In 17, I forgot the date now. Anyway, when the Constitution was ratified, <laughs> when it was ratified, 1797? Huh? 88. There we go. 1788. Of all the things to leave out of my notes yeah. and try to leave to this memory. 1788, again, look at the date. Now we're in Philadelphia, aren't we? See, and that's what I'm saying is that it's just enough. The Constitution is ratified in 1788, and it's just enough. Philadelphia uh, looks, and they say, they say, look, we have, a, we have a document now that now guarantees you what? Guarantees you freedom. But on the first page after the preamble, it includes of who is a citizen and who is not. And the slaves are only given three-fifths of their citizenship. And if you say, well, you know, that was, that was back earlier, well, by the time that you get uh, further on, a little further on, in still the original, in, in the original is the fugitive slave cause, which required by federal law, by federal law, for you to return any slave that was a fugitive from its owner. The second most important decision at the time when the Supreme Court meets is the Dred Scott case which said that Negroes were not protected as citizens under the Constitution. So the very first time that the, that the system that was set up to address the unconstitutionality of freedom and infringing upon freedom, the slave has no ally there either. It wasn't their country, and they knew it. On the 4th of July, in 1852, Frederick Douglass tells us this. He goes, I'm not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. 
the rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. The 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty, call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. 1852, by the way, Philadelphia ends in 1850. It was, it was almost like the prophecy says, okay, you had your chance. You put it in words. You put it in documents. You had your chance. But it's done. It's done. The two-horned beast is now in control. I went to public school funded by my father and mother's tax dollars. I was never taught this in school. Were you? I haven't found anybody in the Adventist system that was taught this either. I was taught manifest destiny in school, and I was even told by at least three teachers that manifest destiny was a divine right. That's what made it manifest. It's not a lamb power. It's a beast power co-opted into a God that is so much easier to worship than the lamb himself. So what are we called to do? To separate the lamb from the likeness, amen? We need to separate the lamb from the likeness, amen? Seventh-day Adventists were incorporated into doing this. When we were first founded, this is what we thought we were here to do. We were abolitionists from the get-go. We were abolitionists in, in our DNA. As a matter of fact, we all know that we were here to preach the first angel's message. Did you know that back in the 1850s, this was their interpretation? This was their interpretation of the first angel's message. The first angel, it was, it was said, is um, that they needed to, uh, if, if pro-slavery Americans remained unrepentant, they would be doubly punished for their sins. And why is it? Why is it that they're able to preach that message? It's because the people in the church are slave owners themselves. We talk about, we talk about uh, going out and reaching unto all the world, but Adventism begins in a cocoon. It begins in an American Christian cocoon. Our, our uh, body, yes, itself, but also all of, those, um, all of those pioneers were members of other churches at one time, and they knew, they knew that at any given moment, half of the church were slave owners or pro-slavery, and the other half wasn't. That's what I'm saying is that, is, is that the church that claimed to be the church of the Lamb was giving the country the message that slavery was divinely ordained. The church was doing nothing about it, not just in the South. The second angel warned that Babylon had fallen. And before Babylon falls, what does the angel warn the people to do? Come out of her, my people. Come out of her. 
They said that those were the Millerites that were coming out of Protestant churches because they supported slavery. That was the second angel's message. The Millerites were the second angel's message. They did come out of her. Third angel's message was against worshiping the beast by being what? By being anti-slavery. This is from the 1860s. This is, you know, uh, would have been what they, if they had projectors, what they could have projected. But look at it. Look at it. The two-horned beast, the, one of the horns is slavery, the other is creeds. Look at the chains that's around both of his legs. And notice, and notice who's right next door. The beast from the sea, right there. And, it, and, and I love that, it, I, I don't love, but it is so clever that it isn't a barrier or a wall between the two beasts. <laughs> it's a rope. It's, a, it's, it's, it's like what you'd have at the bank which indicates that they what? That they can communicate. Revelation 13, one to 18, according to our pioneers, reveals that the two-horned beast enforces idolatry. Adventists identified America as the beast because it professed to uphold religious and civil liberty, the two horns. But in reality, denied those privileges to religious and racial minorities. We have to identify the likeness in order to be able to separate the likeness from the lamb. We need to identify Christian nationalism when it comes up and hits us in the face. Eliminate it from our theology, our mission, our doctrine, and our hearts. Will it be hard? It's hard looking at our history, is it not? The beast always looks like they're winning, both of them. They always look like they're winning. They have more money, they have more power, they've got force, they've got fear, and unfortunately, because of this second beast, they appear more patriotic too. Because the power of the second beast is people are convinced that it's power of the lamb, not power of the dragon. Because if it's American, how could it not be from God? One of the hardest things for me to begin to, to when I begin to deal with this a few years ago, to, to truly deal with this, is to get out of my head that God favors us as a nation just because we look like this. And just because it says on our money that in God we trust, it doesn't necessarily mean that we really are, are we? Three years ago was the first time that I ever uh, preached anything like this. And I actually was asked in this very sanctuary, standing about right there, came up to me and said, why are you talking about this? Why are you talking about this? The Civil War is over. That, th- that really threw me off. That threw me back. Not 1964, not 1968, none, <laughs> none of that. No, the Civil War is over. Well, <laughs> look, at the, look at what happened in between the Civil War. Look at the, look at the Adventist church. The Adventist church, when we were supposed to be uh, preaching this message, when we were supposed to be helping people find the Lamb, where were we? What were we doing? 
The 13th Amendment in 1865 abolished slavery, abolished it, 1865. We're well past 1850 now, aren't we? We're well past Philadelphia now, aren't we? The 14th Amendment made it illegal to deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. That was ratified in 1868. By the way, we'd now been an official American denomination for five years by 1868. We were founded as Seventh-day Adventists or the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1863. The 15th Amendment guaranteeing the right to vote regardless of color passes in 1870. On paper, it all looks good, doesn't it? But remember what he, what he told Sardis? You have a reputation of being alive. But the church? In 1890, Robert Kilgore, who was the very first vice president of, of what they called the colored work in the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, he said that the church should remain segregated until the mid-1950s, which it does. The very first man that they put in charge of what they called the colored work was a white man. And he said, we should remain segregated. 1890. And we stayed segregated until the mid-50s. Despite prophetic guidance given to the General Conference in 1891, Ellen White pleading and teaching documented in the Southern work. If you look at the book Southern Work on page nine, she says, those who slight a brother because of his color are slighting Jesus. Result of the neglect of the colored people, curse of sin on the church. She also writes that the white church is to repair as far as it is in their power the past injury done to the colored people, to throw their influence against the customs and practices of the world. It's interesting. In the one way that we are supposed to separate ourselves from the world, and by the 1890s and the 1900s, we're participating in it. The love of Jesus is the dissipator of heredity and cultivated practices. I shared with you twice now, 1942, a woman named Lucy Bayard, a woman of color who was brought critically ill to the Washington Sanitarium. Immediate treatment began until a nurse found out that she was black. They put her in the hallway to transport her across town to the Freeman Hospital where she later died. Brown versus the Board of Education, 56, finally strikes down, separate but equal, that's been around since 1897. Finally strikes it down. The University of Georgia is the last known major university to desegregate, but it didn't happen until 1961. Southern Adventist College did not desegregate until 1965. I talk about it now because as late as 1984, I had friends of color who showed up at, at, at a church in California and was told by a greeter that he would gladly give them directions to their church across the town. I talk about this now because at this moment, right now, there are Adventists all over this country, you know, within a few hours of a time zone that are still worshiping in segregated churches. 
giving the message to the world that we can't get any along better than they are. I talk about it because the, when we first uh, began to reach out to, to our Spanish brothers and sisters, I was told that it would be too disruptive. I talk about it now because the power of the cross is love. And it's not what the world needs, it's what the church needs. And just in case, just in case you think that I, I uh, will do nothing but always pick on the church, I get told that a lot. You pick on the church a lot. On December 10th of 2021, it was a momentous day for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Adventist Healthcare, the president of Adventist Healthcare, and a, a group together of historically black colleges and universities got together as they unveiled a portrait of Lucy Bayard, which now hangs or will hang in the White Oak Hospital in Maryland, which is the hospital that came from the Washington Sanatorium. That's the painting there. That is her great-grandniece there. Five nursing scholarships have been established in her name and her portrait will now grace the hallways of the hospital that once kicked her out because she was black. A better picture of it. And by the way, a lot, a lot of historians point to this, this uh, event in 1942 that truly fractured the church. Because when this happened, black leaders who had then been trying to, to, to stay uh, with the rest of the white church and, and, and join, it was at this moment right here when they knew that they were never ever going to be able to peacefully work their way into leadership. And this is when the presentation came forth of putting forth the regional conferences, which we live with to this day. They weren't safe practicing their own religion in the white church. They needed to make their own. And I have to tell you, I've, I've got a, a few friends, pastors of color, who tell me that truly it is no safer today than it was in 1942. We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to who? To believers. This is the stumbling block. This is the end time, if you will, stumbling block. Differentiating between the power of the sword and the power of the cross. Nationalism is all the power of the sword, but just because it's painted in, in a particular color, just because it's painted to look like the cross does not make it any more like the lamb than the dragon is. And if the church is, is comfortable with any image of Christ, it has to be the one of the good shepherd. The one who doesn't kill for the sheep, he what? He lays down his life.
So I wanna remind each and every one of us that even though we are so many years past Philadelphia and even in the Laodicea, one thing that I've always noticed is that yes, the church locked him out. The church took that open door in, in Philadelphia that no one could close and it closed it. And when, and when she closed it, she locked Jesus out. This is the, exactly what I'm talking about. But, but the beautiful thing is, is that he's still standing out there knocking. He's still where? He's still here. You know, in, in, in Daniel, he shows up. In, in King's lives that were trying to exterminate his people, God shows up and is with them. He's always there. We could be completely, absolutely consumed in the belly of the beast, the first one or the second one. And he's there. So he's especially with us in Laodicea. By the way, the worst church, Laodicea, which I hope you don't, does everybody want to talk about Laodicea next week and the week after? No? Okay. If I take my popular vote, then I'm done today, right? The Laodicea, the worst church, before we look at it, gets the greatest reward. Laodicea gets him. Laodicea just says, if you open up the door, I'll come in and I'll sit with you. And then the very last, he says, those who do this, sit with me on my throne. See, Jesus' throne is wherever he sits. And if Laodicea would open the door, no other church gets that. It's the worst church that gets it. It's us. The ones that have struggled for how many years now to try to separate the lamb likeness from the lamb and to be able to walk as we should walk, to be able to love as we should love. He's outside, yes, but he is here. We just have to open the door. And I thank God that we get to do that together again. Thank you again for holding on in there with me.